All right, everyone, sorry to uh, put an end to your conversation, but we do need to move on. Um, we have lots more good in store this morning, so. <laughs> I know. Can someone do a loud whistle sound? <laughs> Thank you. See, this is why you should be up here. <laughs> All right, so we're going to move along. Um, I'm excited this morning to be introducing our speaker for, for this morning. It's Lisa Meharry, if you haven't figured that out yet. Um, she has been involved with Faith Church for about the last 19 years um, in many different ways, which you're going to hear about. But she's um, been involved as an administrative assistant on the media team, business administrator, and many, many other roles. She's just, just about done it all. Um, and she now lives near Orlando, Florida. She's been there for about the past 10 years. Um, uh, working as a coach and trainer with Wycliffe Bible Translators. Um, in her spare time, her hobbies include spending time at the ocean, which I wish could be a hobby of mine, um, random games of chance, and spending time with people. And so she's going to come up, but first let me pray for her. Heavenly Father, um, thank you again just for um, the many blessings that you give to us each and every day. Thank you for this church and for the people here who are willing to just share about how you've been working in their lives, Father. I pray for Lisa that you'd be with her this morning as she um, just shares what's on her heart, Lord, and I pray that we could see you at work in her life and in our lives too. pray this in your name. Amen. It's been a blast to watch um, Mrs. Shambaugh in this role. Uh, Anne-Marie and I first met each other when she was a student at Heritage, and so to go and to meet with her and to practice this and to watch her coach me was just a blast because she does it really, really well. I love that. That was great fun. So the question you had this morning is the icebreaker comes from a book by Gary Thomas called Spiritual Pathways. And Thomas contends that through history, people have maintained vibrant relationships with God in very different ways from each other. And yet each of them have been great ways for them to go ahead and have a, a strong relationship with God. Well, I've heard other people expound on this book and come up with other pathways as well. And you may, too, in addition to the ones that were listed there. And the one that fits me the best is the relator, the pathway of the relator. That means that I'm one for whom solitude may feel like solitary confinement. And that's not a good thing. It does mean that I see God most clearly as he's evidenced in the lives of people. And as I look back, what I see in my life is a beautiful parade of people who had demonstrated God's characteristics to me, some of them for a brief time and some of them for decades. Together, they've helped me desire to be more and more like Jesus. Let me give you just a few glimpses of what I would call turning point moments as I condense 60 years of God's faithfulness into 30 minutes. If you've ever studied learning styles, I'm very concrete random, which means the way I organize things may sound a little bit like the book of James, where he spirals around a concept until it's not easy to know where he's headed until the spiral comes back again, and then suddenly it all makes sense. So here goes. Psalm 139, verse 16, says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. I had a student once say that for him, God's will was not mysterious. Instead, it was like being inside a huge water slide. God's direction was so clear that he was just carried along to the next thing. What he needed to do was not fight it and go along for the ride, and it was exhilarating. That was largely been my experience, too. God's direction has been very direct and very clear, and I'm thankful. I'll admit that the changes in direction have often been sudden, but that just makes the ride more interesting sometimes. And so here's the big picture timeline. Yep, that's how old I am. I'm the oldest of four. 
My parents are from New Richmond and Wingate, Indiana, tiny little towns in Tippecanoe and Montgomery counties. I spent my first five years there in the kind of towns where in the very early 60s, I could walk to the grocery store by myself long before kindergarten. Dad's job, though, was in Indianapolis. And right before I was to begin first grade, my parents made a move to the booming metropolis of Brownsburg, closer to Indy, but still a small town feel. I can look back and see that much I learned from my family. And here are just a few examples. My dad, for instance, taught me problem-solving skills. And he taught me the ability to think much about others rather than himself. My mom continues to teach me a contentedness that adjusts to every situation rather than fighting against change. My grandmother, Meharry, taught me about a gentle spirit, the ability to plan for the future by doing things well today. My Aunt Ethel taught me that joy is an essential ingredient to life and that we all take ourselves too seriously too often. At some point, a new neighbor invited our family to attend church with them, and my parents and I soon came to a knowledge of Jesus as Savior. I'm very thankful for that neighbor's outreach. The church we attended, Bethesda Baptist in Brownsburg, provided an amazing biblical foundation for me. From Bible stories to quiz teams, I began to learn the content of the Word of God. Adults who impacted my life included countless Sunday school teachers and youth group leaders and choir members and softball team members as I rubbed shoulders with each of them. Some of the most influential were Ozella Pratt, Larry and Sue Zerniak, Rich and Yvonne McGee, Karen Taylor, Gary Roseboom. From them, I learned it is a good thing to commit my life completely to God's plan. I have peer relationships from that era that are still impacting my life, too. If you saw Facebook a couple weeks ago, you saw Susie and Janet and Cindy and Kim. And missing from that picture were Brenda and Judy. But from them, I am still learning how to continue growing as we walk through the challenges of life, as we age sometimes. Flashback to elementary school. I can remember acting out and getting in trouble in art class because I couldn't do it. I couldn't make my hands paint or color or whatever it was she was asking us to do. But music, that was a different story. I remember Evelyn Kaplinger. I think she might have been the only music teacher for the entire Brownsburg School District in the mid-60s. One day at a rehearsal for a joint fourth and fifth grade school vocal program, I remember her moving me next to an older student and saying, sing what Mindy sings. Well, Mindy knew how to sing harmonies. And so I learned to listen to music in a new way that day. And that one day would become a shaping factor for the huge portion of my life. During my high school years, I took tons of math and science classes and enjoyed almost all of them. I was very involved in band. I'd been elected band president in my senior year, and that means I got to lead warm-ups at the beginning of the class hour. Our band director was ill a lot in my senior year, so the poor substitute teacher who'd been assigned to us just permitted me to keep leading the class. At least that way we were generally productive and causing a little less trouble than we might have otherwise. Little did I know at that point how little I truly knew about music. When it came time to consider college, I had to make a decision. It was the era when women were either teachers or nurses, and the sight of blood made me pass out, so teacher it was. Then, would I learn to teach chemistry or music? Well, the school I chose to attend first didn't offer chemistry education as an option for a major, so music it was. The Lord built in a gap year for me during my college education, and during that year I had a lot of lessons to learn and a lot of growing up to do. I spent a year as an assistant to an accountant who did lots of inventory cost accounting, so I learned that was something I could do, 
but it was clearly not I wanted, what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing. I also learned much about the heart of God, as it's reflected in Psalm 103. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. God's love for us is based on himself rather than on us or our performance. That's something I'd learned with my head, but it all came much more real to me during that time. After the gap year, I went to Cedarville College, now Cedarville University, where I had amazing opportunities to learn not only music, but about life and Christian maturity in new ways. The profs who were influential during that time, some of them Charles Pennard, Dr. David Matson, Dr. Lyle Anderson, Dr. Alan Monroe. From them, I learned excellence within the professional realms where shortcuts were not acceptable. The Lord also provided deep peer relationships there that would impact my life for decades. Kathy Heatley Bartimus, Michelle Manuel Prokop, Gwendolyn Smith Royce. From them, I learned how to have friendships that are faithful through the busyness and how to enjoy the joys of life that God provides for us in life. As a complete side note, I was with Kathy, Bartimus, he, Kathy Heatley Bartimus when she interviewed for the job at Heritage Christian in the spring of 1980, and that will be important later. I was nearing graduation from Cedarville and had two teaching offers, one at a small Christian school in Kokomo, Indiana, the other at a large Christian school in San Bernardino, California. The job I wanted was in California, but the location I wanted was Kokomo. I needed to make a decision within the week. Dr. David Matson, then the Cedarville Music Department Chair, connected with me during that week to let me know about a teaching assistantship he had just become aware of at Wright State University in Fairborn, Ohio. He recommended that I check it out. Well, I did, and I let the folks at Wright State know that I didn't wish to be presumptive, but if they wanted to offer the assistantship to me, they'd need to let me know within the next three days, or I'd need to accept another offer. Well, they did let me know, and I spent the next two years doing graduate school at Wright State. I definitely gained a different perspective on the world during that time. Between the perspectives of the profs, which were generally not biblical perspectives, and then renting a room from a dear lady who did not know the Lord. I saw much more of the hopelessness, hopelessness with which many people live their lives. Every time I did, I gained a deeper appreciation for God's grace and provision in my life and for the certainty with which we are privileged to live life. Not because we have it all figured out, but because God does. I was also connected, reconnected with a prof from my pre-Cedarville days, Dr. Charles Clevenger. He and his wife, Rhonda, were new on staff at Cedarville then and were a great resource and encouragement to me during this chapter of life. So this was really my first time out on my own. And so there were all of those lessons to learn too. It was my first opportunity to give to missions. I was on a stipend of $3,500 for the 1981 school year. It was amazing. To celebrate a, a successful concert, it was a huge thrill to go get a 25-cent ice cream cone from McDonald's. That was a brand new thing on their menu at that point. But I got to learn a lot about God's direct provision for me during those times, during that time. As it came time to finish my grad studies, Dr. Matson was influential again. 
as he recommended me for a job in Hutchinson, Kansas, or Hutch, as the locals call it. It would be teaching grades 5 through 12, band, choir, and general music. I also got to teach some 8th grade Bible and some 8th grade math some years because it was a very small school. Those five years of my first real job were years of theological growth and personal growth. There were new friends like Bev Vogel, Faye Wickert, Shirley Wickert, who taught me much about the balance of life. They taught me how to work very hard and how to play just as hard. There were also students who later became peers like Eileen Friesen Unger and Gail Pruto. I continue to learn much from those friends and the two students helped me stay young for sure. I remember at the end of my fifth year in Hutchinson telling one of the school board members that I had never been so contented with my role or with the direction of the school as I was at that point. Everything seemed to be perfect. Then I went to Brownsburg for a brief vacation. When I connected with Kathy, my Cedarville friend, she made me aware that the band director's job at Heritage Christian was open for the coming year. Through a technicality, we had not yet signed contracts for the coming year in Hutch, but I was all set to do another year there. Well, I had a couple of casual conversations with Heritage Administrators Alan Leinbach and Gary Walker, and before I knew what was happening, I had an offer of a job if I decided to apply. It became clear that I should take the job at Heritage, so then I had the rest of the summer in Hutch to come to closure there. And even in that short time, the Lord provided a great new friendship with Judy Morrison Euchre. After the death of her brother from Judy, I learned how to have joy in the midst of grief. Well, in Hutch, I'd rented a furnished basement apartment, and so that was perfect for the fresh out of school person that I'd been. It also made moving back to Indianapolis very, very simple. Sometime over that summer, my grandma Dooley had just moved in with my aunt, my mom's sister, so her apartment full of furniture was waiting for me in my parents' garage, and that was a wonderful provision of God to get me started in Indianapolis. In God's providence, that also mean, meant coming back to Indiana. I was there, rather than in Kansas, for some very significant family events, including the deaths of my Grandma Dooley and my Uncle Steve, who had been Aunt Ethel's husband. Well, at that point, the Lord led me to begin attending College Park Church. Kimber Kaufman, the lead pastor at that time, had been a part of that Bethesda youth group way back when. God began to surround me with new friendships, Peg Meeks, Carrie Bell, Cheryl Loy, Jill Carson, Kathy Culp, Julie Hughes, Sherry Grawn, each of them provided countless encouragements and much accountability as we walked through life together. I also learned much about studying the Word of God deeply during that chapter. Well, I was at Heritage for 13 years, teaching band and choir, chairing the music department. During that time, Tim Hillen provided much help during a family crisis. I'm grateful for other administrators like Mary Jane English and Alan Leinbach, who loved God and students deeply and cultivated those same attitudes in their teachers. There were great students who went far, who worked hard and pursued Christian maturity in ways far beyond their years. Some of the students like Matt Mulvaney, who one evening had the courage to privately challenge an attitude that I had that I was exhibiting toward the kids. I had significant friendships with other teachers, Darcy Rund, Catherine Curry, Kathy Bartimus, Teresa Board, each of them were committed to excellence in their teaching, and they spurred me on to that same kind of excellence. It was at Heritage that I met Charlene Canada. She was a band parent who assisted in my classroom. And at Heritage, I also met Ruth Hubbard, whose story's been intertwined with mine ever since. More about that later.
Well, in the spring of 99, Charlene began to tell me about a short-term trip she and her family were going to take back to Ukraine. They'd been there before. I remember thinking that short-term missions was a good thing and that someday I should do that, but didn't think much else about it. Well, Charlene continued to talk about the trip, and at one point, I just knew she was likely going to ask me to consider going with them. Well, there are multiple layers of the ways that God worked in the next week to specifically answer prayers and to enable me to go on that trip with a team from Faith led by Dave Baldwin. Deb and Andy Klotz, John King, Lisa Horstman were among the team and a part of that trip. During that time, with the help of some other circumstances, the Lord began to lead me away from College Park with Pastor Kimber's blessing. So I became a part of the Baldwin Home Group here at Faith Church. That means I got to know Dave and Louise, Lois Gumper, David and Maren Breitweiser, Ruby Grossdidier, Tom and Ann Buckley. Catherine Curry was there, too. I'd often express to people outside of faith that for the folks in that home group, worship was a lifestyle, not an activity. And that was a great lesson to begin to learn that early. Well, within a few weeks at faith, I was working on the media team. By that fall, I was directing the adult choir. Loop back around, for several years in teaching, I'd been feeling what some would call the push from teaching, that feeling that a change was coming. One fall, the Lord put circumstances into place to let me know that should be my last year of teaching. Mary Jane English was providentially a part of multiple significant conversations then. The Lord permitted me to have a part in selecting the next band director and entrusting the students to her. It felt like a little glimpse into the transition God provided for the children of Israel when he provided Joshua. Not that I was anything like Moses, but it was really cool. My salary for teaching was set up to continue through the summer, so I began taking classes for information technology and applying for jobs. I got my A-plus certification, in case that means anything to you. I continued at Faith part-time with media and adult choir, but anticipated having a full-time role somewhere in the business sector. About that time, Dave Baldwin's administrative assistant announced that she was going back to school. Dave let a whole 24 hours pass before he called me to offer me that half-time role. With that and the media and choir roles, there would be enough for me to do to have a full-time role at Faith, and that brought benefits. And as a single, that was kind of important. So Dave said something like, well, just come help us for a few days, or at least until the busy time is over. Well, Dave was an amazing and gracious boss. He taught me much about delegation and much about humility. I have the greatest respect for him. My role as a missions assistant had me reading every update that came in from the Faith Missions family, so I got to know their stories well right away. That was 2001. I continued full-time at Faith until April 30th of 2010. During that time, yes, I had at least brief roles as the missions pastor's administrative assistant, doing media and IT support, doing the adult choir and traditional worship. I even subbed in communications for a period of time, working on the Sunday bulletin. That was a scary time for everyone, I'm sure. Then, the last five years of faith, I was the business administrator. And while I was on staff, the missionary care team sent me to be a travel companion for Ann Benson as she went to visit Kathy Small in Peru. If you know anything about Ann's story and the thousands, of, probably hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands of miles she has traveled around the globe, Ann did not need a travel companion. But it was a real privilege to go with her. 
It was great to spend that time with Anne and to see Kathy's world. I was able to help out with some computer things for Kathy as we were there, and I got to experience at least a glimpse of South American life. I also got to see firsthand how Faith Church cares for her missionaries. Well, the short-term trip thing, I had taken a total of five Ukraine trips with faith teams. The first four were ministry trips alongside Ukrainians, doing work projects, visiting churches, providing VBS. The fifth trip was very different, though. It was providing missionary care for the SEND International team in Ukraine. I got to see missionary life in a new way, spending that time with those faithful servants. During that trip, through a variety of circumstances, Steve Wooden invited me to consider coming to Ukraine to be the business administrator for the SEND team. I went home and began to process that invitation only to have the Lord create an entire set of unique circumstances just for me to know it was his time for me to consider missions. I had long and multiple conversations with Ann Benson, Ruth Hubbard, Louise Baldwin, Charlene Canada, Dawn Waltz, Molly Allison, Joanne Beachy, Jane Fleck, Rebecca Risser, and I'm so grateful for the prayers and the cumulative counsel of so many as I sought God's direction for his next step. I was encouraged to investigate more than one missions agency. I was invited to go to Florida to visit Ruth and be introduced more fully to Wycliffe Bible translators. I was drawn to the simple clarity of the vision of Wycliffe, that the Bible be accessible to all people in the language of their heart. Don Waltz and Jane Fleck picked me up from the airport when I returned to Indy. They both grinned. They said I just couldn't stop chattering about Wycliffe. I was clearly excited about what I just learned. And the more I read and learned about Wycliffe, the more I was drawn to be a part of it. All the things I'd heard from or about Bill and Lee Hall, Jeff and Peg Shrum, Ruth Hubbard, John and Debbie Clifton, Ron and Sharon Stolzfus, Bill and Ruth Gluck, Hap and Gladys Skinner, all Wycliffe missionaries, that all began to make sense to me in new ways. I began to see that the role being proposed at Send International was very much tied to Steve Wooden's vision for what that role could be. Providentially, Steve and Nancy Wooden were stateside during the time I was making this decision so that they could see God opening the doors at Wycliffe and closing them at Send. It was a blessing to have them affirm the decision to not go to Ukraine to serve with them. Mark and Charlene Canada were in Kiev by then, so their affirmation to go elsewhere was also an encouragement. It would have been a tremendous joy to serve alongside Woodens and Canada's in Ukraine, but that was not what the Lord had in mind. God used Faith Church as the primary sender for me, both in exposing me to the work of other Wycliffe missionaries and in providing prayer and resources. I am honored to be a part of the missions family. 70% of my Wycliffe financial partnership team is from Faith Church. It is such a blessing to extend your ministry to serve the Bibleists around the world. I mentioned a connection with Ruth Hubbard earlier. You might recall, I met Ruth when we were both teaching at Heritage Christian. Then she left Heritage to come on staff at Faith. Then I left Heritage to come on staff at Faith. Then Ruth left Faith to become a part of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Then I left Faith to become a part of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Just for the record, Ruth left me a message when she left Wycliffe to begin leading Wycliffe's InterVarsity's Urbana team. She told me she would send me directions to Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> I don't anticipate make, make, making a move like that, but 
We'll see. So when I began in Florida, I worked in facilities administration in a role very much like the business administrator role that I'd had at Faith. Then an opportunity came up to begin coaching other new Wycliffe missionaries about how to share their story and Wycliffe's story. We call it partnership development coaching, coming alongside colleagues as they ask God to build their teams of prayer and financial partners. While my role later expanded to include other opportunities that I have now. Doing logistics to facilitate on-site programs for the development orientation training team, better known as DOT or DOT. And our little motto that we like is, we move people from here to there. We celebrate them, we care for them, we connect them and reconnect them to the organization. And now I have a completely random mix of tasks and people encounters, and I can tell you it's an exhilarating and exhausting and wonderful fit. I can look back over life and see that every change in the past has been exactly in God's perfect timing. Sometimes I've had very little preparation for the change, and sometimes it's been lots of time but there's always been enough time, and for that I'm grateful. I was challenged once to summarize my life in six words, and that's where today's title comes from. Knowing God, knowing others, finding me. So I'm sure you noticed the litany of names I was able to share with you today. Each of those people has been important in a slice of life for me. In some ways, no one of them has the whole story. Only the Lord himself has that. But he's used all of these people at important times and places. He's continued to reveal himself to me, not only through his word, but also through his people. The Lord has used so many of you and so many experiences connected with Faith Church in the process of molding Lisa. He's used my family and my singleness also as a part of that process. And each encounter and experience has worked together to help me to understand how he's made provision for me to know him even more and also to know more about myself about how God has wired me and how I can then serve him in a meaningful way. So what does the future hold? In some ways, my future is uncertain, but yet it isn't at all. I know that just as God has met my needs in every chapter of my life up to this point, he will continue to meet my needs in tangible ways and in intangible ways. My heart is to continue serving with Wycliffe as I am now as long as I am able. The IRS says I'll reach full retirement age in September of 2024. They aren't counting on the fact that the average retirement age at Wycliffe is somewhere around 71. Wycliffe partners with another organization called Every Tribe, Every Nation, and Every Tribe, Every Nation has set these goals for 2033, that by that time, all of the language groups that have more than 500,000 people in them, that would be 95% of the population of the world, would have a full Bible. That any population group with more than 5,000 people would have a full New Testament. That's 99% of the people on the planet. That 100% of the language groups on the planet would have at least 25 chapters of scripture. And that the top 100 languages, population-wise, would have at least two full translations of the Bible. Well, at this point in time, there are still 1,600 languages, roughly, with no translation of scripture. So there is still much to do, yet in my lifetime. I'm privileged to continue the process with Wycliffe, and we'll do that, as I said, as long as God, as God enables me to do that. I want to give you just a couple more thoughts of what God's been working on in me, and one of them is he's continuing to ask me to practice joy, to live in joy. I recently found this paraphrase of Philippians 4, 4 through 8, and have been focusing here. The message version says, celebrate God all day, every day. I mean, revel in him. 
Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you are on their side, working with them and not against them. Help them see that the master is about to arrive. He could show up any minute. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers, letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you do best by filling your minds and meditating on things true, noble, reputable, authentic, compelling, gracious, the best, not the worst, the beautiful, not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. My body is beginning to show signs of age, and that has not been fun, but even in the midst of those challenges, I'm learning to celebrate God all day, every day. I'm still learning, I can't do that on my own, that the Spirit's power is necessary even to celebrate well. It's something I think I will always be learning and growing in. I'm grateful to be a team, part of a team in Orlando now who spurs me on to holiness and to good works. The names you'll hear most from there are Mark and Deb Borland, Joe Haig, Diana Stewart, veteran missionaries who have a deep love for the Lord and who have modeled service well for me. I'm grateful to be an extension of Faith Church to the Bibleists. Your prayers and gifts and encouragements are vital to my continued opportunities for ministry. I'm grateful to know that we each continue to serve just where the Lord has placed us. And my prayer for you, Faith Church, is that he would continue to expand your influence for his kingdom right where he's placed you today. Blessings to you. I would say that the classic answer would be, yes, the, the word of God and its direction, the counsel of people, and then the circumstances that God sets in place. Uh, the, like the going even as far back as the, the teaching assistantship, it was completely circumstantial uh, that I even had opportunity to apply. The counsel from Dr. Matson was, this would be a super thing for you to do. And I don't remember specific, specific passages at that point in time, but uh, I, I know that only because of probably a great foundation that I had even as I was a child. I was in the habit of doing daily quiet times well by high school, if not before. I'm not sure I can tell you what I learned from most of those days other than the overwhelming, uh, the accumulation of the word of God and the counsel of God that then brings a, a certainty to it, uh, I guess is the best way I can say. So I would highly encourage you, yeah, the, the regular intake of the word of God, even if it doesn't seem to apply to this specific situation, Counsel from those who know you well uh, and who have the, the ability to, to get in your face and tell you no when they need to, and then just seeing how God lines the circumstances up. I think the other part of it is the, the knowing me thing, is that as I've gone further in life, I see that the things that truly I'm wired to do 
are the things that give me great joy and the things in which I can be very productive and that God has lined me up to do these kinds of things. And so just seeing that, and sometimes other people have to see that in you first and acknowledge that and give you opportunities to grow in it, but very long answer. Thank you. Andy. 33. 2033, Every Tribe, Every Nation. Uh, if you know anything about the Digital Bible Library, uh, you may have heard the name uh, Mart Green, who the Green family would be behind Hobby Lobby. They're also behind the Digital Bible Library, which means any organization doing translation that subscribes to the Digital Bible Library submits their drafts. That's why then almost instantaneously they can show up on version in all of those hundreds of languages and translations because they're out there in a way that people can access them. There are. There are. And the other thing that Every Tribe, Every Nation provides is a consortium of Bible translation organizations so that, for instance, nobody's working on their own, that uh, Wycliffe is not trying to go someplace where Pioneer Bible Translators already is and do the same thing over again. Instead, just to acknowledge that it's going to take everyone in their spheres to actually accomplish this together. Yes. Yes. 2025, Wycliffe had set a vision in 1999 of by the year 2025 of at least seeing a Bible translation program begun in every language that still needed it. And the acceleration of Bible translation right now, if, if we were to extrapolate at this current speed, we're somewhere around 2031 in beginning and yet continuing to accelerate. It's amazing the, the way God has provided opportunities for Bible translation to accelerate. Most of it now, quite honestly, being done by mother tongue translators, by people who already know the language, and then they just need to be able to work with exegetes and experts who know the scriptures well enough to make sure that things line up and remain accurate. Tom. Pioneer Bible tra translators, Lutheran Bible translators, um, there are... If you look at Wycliffe.net, Wycliffe.org is the, is the online presence for Wycliffe USA. Wycliffe Bible Translators, as you probably know most of them. But if you go to Wycliffe.net, that is the Wycliffe Global Alliance, which is not a governing organization. It is instead, it's a place that sets thought leadership. And there are more than 140 different Bible translation organizations around the world uh, who are a part of that and would subscribe to the same principles of Bible translation. Mm -hmm. Some of them would be like the Bible Translation and Literacy Association in, in Cameroon or in Papua New Guinea or all kinds of other places like that where Bible translation is going on. Super. There was a, yes, sir, Jeff. So Lisa, does that, do those grow out of there's already an indigenous church presence mm -hmm. in a country where there's maybe a large multiplicity of languages? Or exactly. That Wycliffe and its partner organization, SIL, you may have heard of, that actually does the translation itself. Uh, Wycliffe would be a religious organization which cannot operate in every area of the world. SIL would be an academic organization which can operate in many more parts of the world freely. They are a faith-based but non-religious organization. It's really splitting hairs, but sort of. But for instance, in Ghana, um, Josh Heidelman, if you happen to know Josh, uh, Josh Heidelman has been what they call a field coordinator, helping manage or project manage uh, projects in Ghana. 
And the Ghanaian church now is to the point where the Ghanaian Bible Translation Organization and the church, they're almost ready to even fund the projects. There's that much stability within the church there. They don't need expats anymore. And so we're not going to come tell them how to do it. They're going to do it best for themselves, for sure. James. So, you know my brother. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Terry and Rachel, so James's brother Terry uh, and Rachel, I got to coach them uh, as they came through to do their initial pre-field coaching stuff. Um, they work with signed languages. They're working particularly in the Asia area. Out of the 1,600 languages that remain with no Bible translation, probably 300 or more of them are languages for the deaf, are signed languages. And the thing that helped me pull it to all together is that, for instance, American Sign Language there is only a New Testament available in American Sign Language, not even an Old Testament for American Sign Language. And then to think about American Sign Language and British Sign Language are radically different from each other, even though they were like, well, that we both speak English. Well, for starters, they developed in completely different cultural contexts. So the sign languages themselves are completely different. And then the next, next question is, well, why can't deaf people just read? And the answer to that is because literacy is based on hearing. Literacy is based on language development. Language development is based on hearing. If you think about how your baby does it, you know, that they learn, first of all, just to make the sounds and to hear the sounds and to reproduce the sounds, and that's how language development occurs long before literacy ever occurs. So what Terry and Rachel are pioneering, particularly, is how do deaf speakers, think about that, how do deaf language communicators access language? And it's very, very different. For some, I've seen videos, I wish I had one to be able to show you. There are some, for instance, if you have a deaf child born into a hearing family and the hearing family has no access to resources, that child may not get any language development at all until their teenage years and have opportunity to engage in a school. And there's no one ever communicating with that child. And you have to think about what that means. It's, that's huge, that's a travesty. But then how do we translate scripture in a way that those people have opportunity to access the language, first of all, and then be able to understand the gospel from it. The cool thing, though, are the technologies that exist. When you think about that, this is not, we're not talking about putting things in Braille. We're talking about, you know, Randy Allison green screen stuff. That's exactly how they do this. They do all video production for the signed languages as they're being produced, and that way the video is transmittable on a micro SD card. And you can go from phone to phone on that, and so distribution becomes really organic in that way. So thanks for asking. Yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a little of both. It's a little of both. There are roughly 3,500 Wycliffe USA members. That means that we have United States citizenship, but could be serving all around the world. And of those 3,500 members, let, let me go back and step, here's the random part coming in again. If you think of the Air Force, what's the most common role you think of in the Air Force? Flying the planes, the pilots, right? My understanding is that fewer than 5% of Air Force personnel are pilots, that it takes the other 95% of the personnel to keep the planes in the air. So knowing that, the people who are language-related roles, those who are translators and linguists, in Wycliffe are roughly one-third of that 3,500. It takes the other two-thirds to keep them 
functioning. So they would be doing things like what I'm doing, training, or they're doing finances, or they're doing recruitment, or they're doing publications, or they're doing uh, government intervention kinds of stuff, or connection kinds of stuff. So the fact that we're two-thirds, one-third means that there are roughly 2,400 language programs in process right now, and there are another 1,600 yet to be begun, which means the workforce to sustain that is, could be as much as double, even in the support roles. So that, for instance, one of the gals who is in our newest orientation is going to manage an apartment complex in Dallas because it's a need. Another gal is going to sit in and write software <laughs> in Orlando, but she has a financial background because that way she can interface with the finance team the way she needs to. So there, uh, landscapers, shoot, we mow yards every week in Florida. You know, It's anything. It really is, in addition to those who are linguists. And to me, linguists are scary smart, like pharmacists, you know, so that they can sit and focus and just problem solve like nobody's business. And um, it, it's, a, it's the kind of thing where if you do it, I can tell you where we could use it. School teachers, we've got school teachers all around the world who are teaching in Christian schools or MK schools, international schools all around the world, so that missionaries who are translators and doing other roles don't have to also be teaching their kids because there's not a way to teach their kids. So you name it, we can use it. Mr. Baum. How much of your uh, involvement is, not, not you personally, but this uh, organization you're involved with, involved with computer, how has it changed? Uh, uh, even since you've been here, Absolutely. Uh, even in the 70s and 80s, there's mm -hmm. been so much change in computers. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what you can about that. Absolutely. William Cameron Townsend would be the one who founded Wycliffe. In 1917, he began to translate a scripture for the Ketchikel people in Guatemala. And he did that on four by six cards, a big box of four by six cards. So that's the classic, which means when he figured out what a word was and what the, you know, what's, what's the word we're going to use for faith. What's the word we're going to use for salvation? And when he figured those words out, and then the more he learned about the language, sometimes then he'd have to go back and change that word. That means if he was working on a draft, anytime it had to be changed every single time along the way. Well, needless to say, that's changed in huge ways. It just do search and replace on a Word document. You know, we all know how to do that part of thing. So that's one big way. Another way was in the very late 90s, just about the time when Wycliffe was beginning to set out Vision 2025, we really wanted God. What it was was in 1999 they realized at the current rate of speed, it will take us another 150 years to begin every translation. And leadership said, that's not acceptable. That's just not acceptable. We have to do this differently. We have to do it faster, better, cheaper, without any loss of quality. That's about the time that technology began to change dramatically. When you think about all the things that happened in preparation for Y2K, remember that scary thing? And all of the, the outgrowth of that has moved into Bible translation. Ruth Hubbard used to say, the rest of the world gets computers because God needs them for Bible translation. And I really do believe that. I, you know, Google Translate, it's a very raw kind of thing, but that gives you the roughest idea of another program they're using called Adapt-It. If you get, for instance, English is sort of related to other Latin languages a little bit, like Spanish, for instance. There's some words that are common. So if you get groups of languages that have similarities, they're from the same language families, and you can get one of them translated, then usually you can get at least a rough draft of these other ones so that you're not starting completely from scratch. The other part of that is, um, also, and you have to let me know when I need to quit. Gotcha. Also in... Also in 1999, there, um, 
there was a, a tsunami in Papua New Guinea on a very, very thin island strip where uh, literally half of a people group was wiped out overnight as a result of the tsunami. And there were 12 language groups in that area who came together and said, we, we've got to have our Bible and we've got to have it now. And what happened was they began to work language speakers from these 12 communities would come together. They would have enough of a trade language in common that they could talk sort of to each other for some things, and they began to translate scripture together and figure out what would work. They call those cluster projects now. Large numbers of cluster projects are happening. Lee Christensen's working with a group of cluster projects in Nigeria, as a matter of fact. And one of those cluster projects is one that Rosemary Day from Heritage Christian has been praying for for 20 years. And now they have a project that's begun, at least. Cool. Thank you so much. Some of you I don't know yet. I would love to meet you. Thank you. Uh, the rest of you I do know, and thank you for your graciousness. <laughs>